Would you bow with me once again in a word of prayer? Father, as we come to Your Word, we know we could not understand it without the Spirit's leading. We know the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. They're spiritually understood, spiritually discerned. You have promised that You would, even as You spoke to Your disciples, that the Spirit would lead us into truth. And so we, we are so dependent upon that. Lord, there's so much from Your Word that we forget. And then in that forgetting, we, we don't realize the implications and the ramifications and the outworking in our life that we miss. You're gracious. You (laughs) mitigate the consequences out of your grace and mercy. And yet we desire in our heart to to be like Christ. So help us, Lord, to grasp the weighty things. Help us to be thoughtful of these things in our own heart and mind as we think about what your word says. And help us to put them into practice. In thought, word, deed, as we reflect upon You and as we reflect the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank You for it all. In our Savior's name, Amen. Alright, this morning let's take our Bibles and return to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, I want us to return where we left off last Lord's Day and begin... Really, this morning to read for us once again, beginning from verse 1 and read down through (coughs) verse 11. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, going down through verse 11. Luke records for us, Now it came about that on a certain Sabbath he was passing through some grain fields. And his disciples were picking and eating the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus, answering them, said, Have you not even read that what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate those consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone? And he gave it to his companions." And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It came about on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Rise and come forward. He rose and came forward. Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. They themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Rather astounding, 
Anyone who reads through their Bible with a desire to know God in even the limited kind of way that in just a short time of ministry, Jesus Christ is here now in a place where those of the religion of human achievement want to get rid of Him altogether. As Christians, it seems rather strange, actually, because for someone to be at a point in their life where others want to kill you, and conclude in their own hearts that you need to be removed from the earth, you would think that this person whom they want to kill and get rid of would have done some pretty bad things. That in their life, throughout their life, they must have done some things that would have caused others to have some sense in which they hate him so vehemently that they want to rid themselves of his presence. And yet, here is Jesus... He has told them why He came. He came to this earth to preach good news. He came to spread the good news about salvation. He came as a newscaster, not the foolish newscasters we see today, but a newscaster of the best news that would ever be given to anyone, and astonishingly, to authenticate the message, to authenticate the reality of what He came to do in saving men, He healed the sick. To authenticate the reality of who He is, He fed the hungry, He cast out demons from those who were possessed by demons, and He even said, your sins are forgiven you. On a grand scale, what Jesus did was bring help to a weary and sin-sick world. And so any thinking person would sit here and have to ask, is that why they wanted to get rid of Jesus? Is that really the reason because of the good that He did to people? And of course the answer can be only a resolute no. That isn't why they wanted to get rid of Jesus. What the religion of human achievement hated about Jesus Christ was just a couple little realities. Summed up in a few little words, Jesus proclaimed that He was God. He claimed to have authority in all of life, and He visibly proved the authority through the miracles that He did. He showed His authority, especially when it came to saving a soul. His authority was seen as He had power over physical sickness. His authority was seen as the physical needs of mankind through feeding men was authenticated by His miracle in how He fed them. The authority that He had over the demonic world was proving that Jesus had authority even in the spiritual realm, and His authority over sin was authenticated by the reality of forgiving sin. All of those things, all of those realities prove beyond any doubt that He was, in fact, who He said He was. He is God in the flesh. And so the reason 
the reason that the religion of human achievement wants to get rid of Jesus is simply because he claims to be God. And since he is God, they would have to answer to him, and they want nothing to do with that. Why? Because they live according to the salvation that comes only by human achievement, which is not a salvation at all. In the religion of human achievement, there is no need to be forgiven. There is no need to be relying upon someone else or something else for your salvation. Salvation in the religion of human achievement is an achieved reality based upon your own human effort and your own human goodness. It does not come through anyone else. So their hatred for Jesus Christ boils out of a heart full of self-love. A love for self, a love for me. Someone said to me years ago, we live in the me generation. We are me monsters. It's true. We are self-love monsters. And self-love is always eternally deadly because it bases its evaluation of what is right and wrong on self-determined standards. And furthermore, because it is based upon self-determined standards, then it always looks down from its lofty, self-praising perch upon those who do not do what you do by matching up to your own self-determined standards And anyone who comes along who exposes that, well, the religion of human achievement simply vehemently hates to be exposed, and so it wants to get rid of whoever exposes what is really going on. That's why the leaders during Jesus' day, the leaders of this religion of human achievement looked at those who were society's downcast, the criminals, the prostitutes, the tax gatherers. That's why they saw them as the sinners. That's why they didn't see themselves as the sinners. It was those who were the downcasts of society, the very kind of people they compared themselves to, were the very kind of people that flocked to Jesus Christ. Why? Because those people knew they were sinners. They knew they needed cleansing, but the religion of human achievement saw none of that in themselves. They saw none of the blackness of the heart within themselves. And so when Jesus comes along and pulls back the curtain of their deceptive, hypocritical hearts, the only thing that their religious pride can do when it's in full view when it's on outward display and it's only an outward display of piety so that others might see it, they couldn't have people see behind the curtain, so they want to get rid of Jesus. The sad part about all of this is in reality, that's the hardest of hearts. That is the hardest of hearts. And this has been the way it is all throughout the ages, ever since the sin that took place in the heart of Adam and Eve in the garden. Those who are the most difficult to reach with the crushing beauty of the gospel 
are those who believe that they are already okay with God because their own lives seem to be okay, particularly when it's compared to others. Especially others in their mind who are worse than they are. When you think about this, if we're really honest, I was looking at this this last Lord's Day, I thought to myself, you know, if we're we're really honest in our hearts, it's not hard for us to understand their perspective. It's not hard for us really to think about the perspective of those in the religion of human achievement to see why they think like that. Because in order to be successful, in order to live a life in which at the end you can look at yourself in the mirror and assume that you are good enough to be okay with God, you have had to in your own life sacrifice much by way of what the world does. You've had to keep yourself from all kinds of sins that the other people might include themselves with doing. You cannot murder someone, for that would label you as a murderer. And so therefore, since you do not murder, you're okay with that. You have sacrificed your life in such a way and orchestrated your life in such a way that you have not seen fit to murder someone else. Or, or you, you haven't committed adultery with someone. You're, you're not an adulterer. You have orchestrated your life in such a way and made decisions in your life in such a way that you have not acted out upon that reality of a sinful reality in your life. And you are relatively honest. After all, you don't fudge too much on your taxes. You don't fudge as much as the other guy might fudge. You give to the poor even if it is a pittance. You've had to sacrifice your own personal time. You've had to sacrifice your own ways. You have always needed to sacrifice in order to be seen as a good neighbor to someone else. Just make sure you define neighbor as someone who is not the sinner. So it shouldn't be hard for us to see how someone would see themselves as better than others. Jesus comes along and He exposes all of that. Jesus comes along, pulls back the curtain of their hypocrisy by saying things like this. You may not actually have murdered someone. You may not actually have gone through the action of doing that and taking the life of someone in an unlawful way, but you certainly have hatred in your heart, which is the basis for which murder happens. Your heart is filled with hate. You may not have committed adultery by way of act, but your heart is filled with the same kind of lust that drives adultery by way of action. Well, how dare Jesus indict them like that? They're religious people. These are the good people of the earth. These are the good people in our day and age. The visible actions of their life show them to be better than everybody else. I mean, if there's no visible sin that that, that is defined that way by the world, it, it would be easy to follow 
Others would see those things, but the secret sins of the heart, nobody sees those. No human can see that, so those of the religion of human achievement are just like all the rest of the sinners. They are condemned. Jesus just simply pulls back the veil. And so they hate Him for that. This is what the religion of human achievement does. The religion of self-love blinds each and every person. And when it's exposed, it only gets more angry with those who speak it. It only gets more angry with a gospel that says you can do no religious good to be acceptable before God. You cannot do anything. All of your righteous deeds, whatever they are, however you define them, all of them are a pile of garbage before God because no one is acceptable to God for salvation on their own. You must only embrace Jesus Christ by faith. The religion of self-love hates that kind of reality. They hate that gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ exposes the real need. And it's a need that those within the religion of human achievement do not think they have. And so Jesus Christ came to do ultimate good by offering Himself as a sacrifice in the place of sinners And the sinners hate Him for it. Like those in John 3. John 3 verse 19, The light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Jesus is exposing the darkness. And because they love the darkness and hate the light, they desire to rid themselves of the light. They believe and have convinced themselves that they can acquire salvation by their own human good and therefore they hate Christ because He completely exposes their hypocrisy and shows them that they cannot in any way arrive at that place. Now go back for just a moment to Matthew chapter 6 because I'm reminded of the words of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount Speaking to this very issue, just to the people in general, chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. It's an interesting implication just from that very text right there that that this is a disease. This is the reality of the sinful heart that not only has infected the world at large and the religions of the world at large, but also can infect those who have claimed Jesus Christ and who actually know Jesus Christ as their Father. There can be the reality that we, even as Christians, practice our righteousness before men in order to be seen by men. Assuming in some way, whatever little way that might be or large way that might be, that God will reward us for that. Jesus went on to say in verse 2, when therefore you give alms, that is give 
to the poor. Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Why do they do that? That they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. You want to sound the trumpet when you give? You want to sound the trumpet when you are philanthropic to the poor in the world out there? Guess what? That's your reward. The people applauding at your righteousness. Oh, what a great person you are. Verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. They, they love the public prayer scene because then people can see them praying and they can be seen as the pious. They want to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. People go away and say, oh, gee, look how spiritually righteous they are. That's their reward. There you go. An applause from men. Over in verse 16, Jesus said, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites. They neglect their appearance, not because they're fasting out of a genuine heart of worship and honor before God. No, in order to be seen fasting by men. Oh, it's a ritual. It's a righteous ritual, a human righteousness on the outside. They want to be seen because they want the praise of men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. All of those virtues that Jesus lists there are truly the virtues of godly people, but but are twisted by the sinful heart into being outward activities in order to be seen by men. They're doing all of these things not in order, not as an outworking of love for God, but as an outworking that they might be loved by God. They're the natural outflow of one's life. If you have a true relationship with God and you want to honor God, then you live in honor to God, but not if you want to gain glory before God. The most important religious activity in the religion of human achievement, as we go back to Mark's or to uh, Luke's gospel, the most important religious activity in the religion of human achievement of the day was the Sabbath. It was the continual religious ceremony that those in the religion of human achievement would never violate outwardly and would follow it with precision. Why? Because it was a time to be seen by everybody. We could, I thought about titling our message even this morning, this is Beyond Display Day. This is Beyond Display Day for the religion of self-love, the religion of human achievement. You say, does it happen in our day? Absolutely. Absolutely. How so? Well, it happens within evangelicalism. Maybe you've heard me talk about this before. It's what I like to call the parking lot miracle. Bet you some of you have had this. I know I have in my own heart. Oftentimes, those who profess to know God, even genuine Christians, will spend most of their week bickering with their spouse. Spend the most of the week as they 
read their Bible and then close their Bible, carrying out a myriad of sins in all kinds of different ways, maybe not murdering and maybe not committing adultery, but certainly the heart isn't in the right place. And then, here comes the Lord's Day. Here comes the day in which the church gathers to worship, and you're at each other's throats all the way down the street to the building where the church meets, and then all of a sudden you pull across the threshold from the concrete to the dirt in our church, and something miraculous happens. It's amazing. Something miraculous happens when you pull into the parking lot. All of a sudden... You act as if everything's just fine. Oh, what a great and glorious week we've had. It's been beautiful. Oh, we're getting along fine. How are you doing, brother? Oh, things are great. Things are great. The sinful heart gets into display mode. It's a parking lot miracle. Sometimes I wonder if there's more power outside than inside. Not really. Not really. You know why? Because God sees our heart. God sees our heart. He sees our hypocrisy. And at that very moment, in that very point in time, we are like those in the religion of self-love. We're only going through the motions, carrying out the religious activity All for show, it's be on display day. This is what's happening, beloved, here in Luke's Gospel. Jesus exposes the hearts of these people for what they really are. And and the response, as we will see, is totally different than what our response ought to be particularly on this day as we contemplate the sacrifice of our Savior for us. They hate Jesus Christ for it. They hate Him for exposing them. After all, this is their Sabbath day. This is their beyond display day. And we remember from our study last time that Sabbath is not a bad thing. It had been instituted by God Himself all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. God had created the heavens and the earth in six literal 24-hour periods of time. God made creation. He made the day 24-hour day, 24 hours long. And on the seventh day, God rests from His creation. He rests from His creative exercise. And He sets that day apart as a memorial day of rest for His covenant people. A day by which they should love God with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and their neighbor as their self. It's a day of exercising what they have been taught from God. Its intent was not to be a burden upon them. It was a day in which they could express their love for God by worshiping God in a corporate reality as they gathered together and expressing their love for one another through that corporate reality by acts of mercy and compassion to their fellow man. But the religion of human achievement 
had perverted what God had said. They had perverted what the intent of God's Sabbath was. And in their self-love system, they had taken the Sabbath to such an extent that it was just another opportunity for them to physically express their outward display of self-love. Look how righteous I am. Look what I do rather than love for God. And if you were a real pious person, you would ensure in your life that you followed all of the man-made Sabbath rules. You did that for sure so that others would look upon your life and say, oh, what a godly person he is. All the while your heart is so sin-filled, you look at others who do not do what you are doing, they're not as good as you, they're not as righteous as you, and you look down upon them out of your self-love pedestal of righteousness. Because of the man-made traditions that had been added to the Sabbath, it was no longer a day of rest. Now it was the most difficult of days in the week. It was not a love day. It was the most hated day of the week. The most hated day. Why? Because it was a whole lot of work. By the way, just as a side note, Jesus Christ had no problem with offending the religion of human achievement. Jesus had no problem offending the religion of human achievement. You say, why? Because it was so deceptively damning. How so? Well, when it came to the Sabbath, Jesus himself paid no addition he paid no attention to the traditional rules that men had added to it. He did on the Sabbath what the Sabbath was intended for. Jesus Christ rested by loving His Father through showing mercy and compassion to others. He spent the time with the people. And by doing that in His mind, the religion of human achievement said and concluded in their own hearts, He's a violator of the Sabbath. He's a violator, in fact, of the worst kind. Now you notice in our text, he has already shocked them with the astounding words of verse 5. He was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He is claiming to be God. Jesus himself is claiming to be God. He is Lord. He is Master he is master of all things, including and especially of the day of rest. And if he is master of that day, then he must be God, since Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, it was God who instituted it. If he is the Lord of it, if he is the master of it, he is God. And as Lord of the Sabbath, he can do what he wishes with the Sabbath according to his own nature and character, and therefore he is doing exactly what it is intended to do, and through his very resurrection, as we read in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, he has even shown what the original Old Covenant requirement of the Sabbath pictured through his resurrection. It was a foreshadowing, a picture established for a time, but now is no more. Christ did away 
did away with it through His death and resurrection. So now we worship. We corporately come together in honor of God by serving each other on the first day of the week, which is the very day that our Lord rose from the dead, just like the disciples began to meet after His resurrection and what has gone on throughout the centuries. This is the Lord's Day. But here, in the context of Luke chapter 6, the old covenant Sabbath is still in effect. Jesus Christ has not died yet for sin in in the reality of time as He created time. It was an accomplished reality in the Godhead when the redemptive plan was set forth, and yet it needed to be accomplished in time. And so here in Luke chapter 6, we are still in old covenant time. And Jesus again, as Luke tells us, is in a synagogue. Verse 6, came about on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue. Remember, there was only really one Sabbath, the main Sabbath going on in the Sabbath day every week. But the, but the Pharisees had added more rules and they did more Sabbaths even. And here's another Sabbath. We're not sure which Sabbath it was, but this is the circumstance around which this entire text hinges. It's the Sabbath. And within the text, it says there's a man there with a withered hand. With a withered hand. Luke tells us the man's right hand is withered. Luke, probably being a physician, noticed that. Unlike the other writers of the New Testament, they don't mention that fact. But also, it could be simply because the word here is atrophied. The man's hand is atrophied, meaning he either underwent some severe injury in his hand that caused his hand to be unusable by way of injury, and therefore his muscles atrophied, so now his arm is unusable, or some other event in his life took place because of that, and now probably he can't even work. So this man's withered hand is more than just simply an injury. It is something that deals with his entire life. So here is this man who has a hand that is completely unusable. And Jesus is going to deliberately use this man as an object lesson to pull back the curtain of the hypocrisy in the hearts of those in the religion of human achievement. Jesus is going to help this man, which according to the religious man-made tradition was unlawful. In the religion of human achievement, there is no mercy. There is no concept of mercy. No compassion, no love for fellow man. There is only the legalistic requirement to keep the tradition. All of which, by the way, was completely against any intent that God had established the Sabbath in the first place. So in the heart of the spiritually prideful is this deep desire here to accuse Jesus Christ of wrongdoing. In fact, that's what it says in verse 7. The scribes and the Pharisees are watching Him closely. Word in the original language means they're, they're, they're studying His every move. They're studying His every move. They're not there for understanding. They are there simply to accuse Him. They had no interest in their own heart's need. They had no interest in the needs of this man in particular or that Christ could or had in the past healed people and could help this man. All they cared about was themselves and their own Sabbath rules. 
And because of that, they're always hounding Christ. They're always there watching. They were always watching His every move. Why? Because all they wanted to do was find some occasion to have their standard of righteousness be on display by which they could accuse (coughs) Jesus Christ. Hey, we've caught a violator of the law. So they're always on scene, never desiring to embrace Christ. This is what the religion of human achievement is all about. It's always wanting to appear righteous and yet always on the scene in order to undermine true righteousness. And so they don't want to embrace Christ because Jesus is completely incompatible with their religion. He doesn't fit in their religion. So they want him gone. So notice again, they care nothing of the man with the withered hand. All they care about is finding fault with Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees are watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order, there's the purpose, in order that they might find reason to accuse him. Isn't it shocking once again that even when you think about it, you would think that even the most selfish of hearts, even the worst of hearts would have one ounce of compassion for someone in such great difficulty in their life. One small little drop of compassion that could be squeezed out of the sponge of their black heart. This man probably couldn't even find a day's work or do a day's work because of his physical malady, but no compassion from them on this day. No way. It was the Sabbath. So to them, you could only help someone if they were in imminent danger of death. Any other kind of help was forbidden. So here we are in this incident. Jesus, as always, knowing the wickedness of their hearts. Even verse 8, He knew what they were thinking. Omniscient Lord always knows what we're thinking. God knows the heart. We cannot hide anything. We can appear before men to be on display as if we are righteous, but God's the one who knows the heart. And in verse 8, Jesus begins to expose their hearts. Notice what He says. He says to the man with the withered hand, rise and come forth. So we know the circumstance, right? The circumstance, once again, a Sabbath day, Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue, The Pharisees are there. The scribes are there. They're watching him. They want to make sure that he follows the the rule, their traditional rules of the Sabbath to the T. If not, they got reason to accuse him. Jesus knows what they're thinking. He always knew what they were thinking. That's why he went there, I think, every time, just to square off with them in a righteous way. And so he exposes them. And he exposes them with two simple questions. Verse 9. Jesus says to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Stop right there for a moment. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Every eye is now on Christ. Put yourself in there in the synagogue, sitting there at the teacher's feet. Jesus is talking Now, Jesus has commanded this man to come forth. He comes over and he looks around at everybody, particularly the Pharisees and the the scribes. 
Their eyes are fixed on Christ. They've already been watching Him with scrutiny. And the question is asked by Jesus, is it lawful? The, the, the implication of the very word lawful is, is it, is it okay according to the traditions which you have set up to do good or to do evil? Everybody there who heard the question is now in a dilemma in their mind. Just by the simple question, there's a dilemma going on. Why? Because in their hearts, everyone would have to admit within themselves that it was lawful to do good. That it's right to do good to someone. And it's unlawful to do evil. Everyone, even those, especially those who live according to the religion of human achievement, would have to say, yes, it's lawful to do good. It's unlawful to do evil. And yet, in acknowledging that in their own heart, here's the dilemma. Because each one of them are there. Each one of them are in the presence of this man. And they leave this man with the withered hand without help. Not one person has helped this man. Not simply the Pharisees and the scribes, but no one else in the synagogue has helped him either. And they know, because they have followed Christ, they have dogged His steps, they know He can help them, and they don't take the man to Jesus. No one shows compassion to the man. And so Jesus adds a second factor. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save a life or to destroy it? The second question is even more exposing than the first question. You say, why? Because certainly they would have said it's lawful to save a life. In fact, even in their their own traditions on the Sabbath, it allowed for them to save a life, right? You could, you could do something if someone's life was threatened. And yet, here they are, sitting there with Jesus, scrutinizing Jesus, and all they want in their own hearts is to what? Kill Jesus. On the Sabbath, their heart is speaking loudly about who they really are. They don't want to save a life. They want to destroy a life. Jesus, with just a few words, is indicting them. He's indicting them. He's pointing his finger right at their heart, especially the teachers of Israel, because they were the ones who were the experts in the Scriptures. Jesus says to them, is it lawful? Is it lawful? It's it's just like Jesus saying back in the previous study that we did, don't you know what the Bible says? Have you not read? I mean, after all, you're the teachers of the law. They intellectually knew what the Scriptures had taught. They knew it was lawful to do good. They knew it was lawful to save a life all the time. It didn't matter what day it was, let alone on a Sabbath day. To do so was to reflect the very character of a loving God. You help someone on the Sabbath, that is the love of God as it's expressed to the love of man. They knew about God's disdain for ritual religion. They had read the prophet Isaiah. God wanted nothing to do with that kind of religion. It sickened him. 
And so here is Jesus in Luke 6, goes right to the heart of the matter. Points his finger, pulls back the curtain and exposes their hypocrisy. What could they say? What could they say? Notice, right between verses 9 and 10, is a white space filled with deafening silence. Deafening silence. A complete hush has now entered the building. No one says anything. To open their mouth is to be self-indicting. Jesus has exposed the hearts of everyone to everybody and especially those who are the religious leaders who are standing there with him, what could they say? Jesus is there desiring to help a man, and they in their hearts are desiring to kill a man. So the real question being asked by Jesus is simply this, particularly to the Pharisees and the scribes, who is reflecting God in this situation, you or me? Who's reflecting the heart of God here? You or me? I want to do good. You are contemplating evil. I want to save. You want to kill. Circumstance? Their most favored day, the Sabbath. The exposure? Jesus pulls back the curtain of their hypocrisy in their hearts. Now the response. Now the response, verse 10. And after looking at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. I hope we can sense the tension in the room. Jesus has just faced off with the religion of human achievement He has exposed their black heart. If we were in the Gospel of Mark right now, Mark in this very parallel passage says, and he was angry. Jesus was angry. I want us to know something about that. In Mark's Gospel, that is the only and only one and only time in the entire New Testament that you see words attributed to Jesus say he was angry. We often see emotion in Jesus Christ. We heard one of those verses even quoted this morning to our time of Sunday school with the young children, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. There is emotion throughout the New Testament when you see Jesus interacting, especially when the glory of His heavenly Father is being undermined as He turns over the table of the money changers in the temple. But in Mark's Gospel, it explicitly says that He's angry with them. You say, why was He so angry? Mark tells us in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, says right after that, he grieved at the hardness of their hearts. So he wasn't sinfully angry. That's what we would be 
he was righteously angry at the glory of God being diminished by their tradition. He was grieved in his heart at their complete unbelief in who he was. It was their lack of mercy. Their words that said they loved God and yet the outflow of a lack of mercy on others. They rejected Jesus Christ because of sin. And because of sin, it grieved Christ. I think that gives us a glimpse into how God sees sin. The Bible tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day. God is angry with the wicked every day, and yet God grieves every day out of His compassion for sinners like us. And so Jesus has asked the question in verse 9, Is it lawful to do good or harm, to save a life, to destroy it? And it's astounding silence from the people. And so the voice that breaks the silence is not the voice of men. The voice that breaks the silence is the voice of God. And the silence of the moment is broken with the compassionate compassion the compassionate command from Jesus Christ Himself to this man who is in this position to stretch out His hand. It is the voice of God relieving the effects of sin. It is not the supposed righteous human achievement of men that is relieving the effects of sin. It can never do that. It is God who is relieving the effects of the sin of this man, the things that have taken place in this man's life which have caused this, which is the fallenness of humanity. Jesus says to him, stretch out your hand. And he did. And his hand is restored. The man obeys what Jesus said and is healed. Here is another authenticating miracle that has taken place before all of these people. No one could rightfully accuse Jesus of breaking a law, let alone even the traditions of men. Why? All Jesus did was speak a word. He didn't touch the man. He didn't get up and go to the man. He did nothing except speak a word that was sufficient to heal and to heal immediately and to restore the man to complete newness in his hand. The Word of God had compassion for this man. Now you would think You would think that anyone in their right mind would rethink their life in that moment. You would think that anyone who has ever sat here in our church building on a baptism night who hears the testimony of a man's life or a woman's life who was ravaged by sin, who has now embraced Jesus Christ by faith, whose life has completely changed, who has just witnessed the reality and the testimony of the miracle of God in the life of a person would rethink their life. Not the hardest of hearts. It's not what the hard heart does. 
verse 11, notice. Jesus has just spoken compassion to the man. The man's hand is completely restored, but. Severe contrast in the original language, but they themselves were filled with rage. They were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. This is what the compassion of God exposes about the darkness of men's heart. The full hardness of their heart is now on full display. Your on-display day now has been changed. You were there to show your own righteousness, thinking that you were a righteous person. God meets you, and you are exposed for who you are, and you only have one of two ways to go. You can either remain in your hardness, reject Him, and want to get rid of Him, or you can embrace Him. They are filled with rage. The original word is the word for folly. Folly, foolishness. The reality is they begin to act foolishly as if their acts of foolishness weren't enough. This is even more foolish. That's an understatement, is it not? It's what the hard heart always does. The hard heart hears the truth, sees the truth, and foolishly rejects the truth. So that's what it is here. They begin to conspire together what they might do to Jesus. Mark's gospel goes even into other details in reference to that. They begin to talk with the political supporters of a line of rulers that come from Herod, the Herodians. The Herodians and the Pharisees were not friends when it came to the rulership of Israel. They wanted nothing to do with one another. They normally were against each other. But now they are conspiring to remove Jesus. The old phrase, children's phrase, birds of a feather flock together seems to fit, doesn't it? One sinful heart likes the other sinful heart when they are together aimed at the same reality. Get rid of Jesus. Beloved, this is the heart of the religion of human achievement. This is the heart of it. This is what it always wants to do. And this ought to be a reminder to all of us that all false religion simply does one thing, blinds people to the truth. That's all it does. It blinds people to the truth of Christ. It blinds people to salvation. What people need is repentance. The only answer is repentance to turn from sin. The only answer is Jesus Christ who died for sin to save man from sin so that man might glorify and enjoy God forever. This is the reason Jesus came. So where are you at this morning? Where are you at in the glimpse that we've looked at here 
on these two Sabbath days as Jesus has exposed the religion of human achievement. We come here this day assuming that on the outward display you could somehow be pleasing to God in such a way that God would now accept you by what you do? Or did you come here today with a heart that simply says, I, I shouldn't even be here because I, I so undeserve the grace and mercy that you give? I just want to love you. I just want to serve you. Whatever that means here, I just want to serve you. I just want to serve you as I serve my fellow man. Lord, that's what we're that's what we're celebrating here this morning when we think about the communion table. What God did for us. Honoring the Father as He loved us. I pray this will be on our hearts and our minds as we prepare our own hearts to worship our Savior in this communion time. Let's pray. Father, certainly more could be said. Maybe we've said too much already. I don't know. Your Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. As we read this morning, it divides down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know the heart. You know all of us as we come here this day, as we sit here this day, as we've worshipped you, you know where we are in our heart. Lord, this morning, use your words, your power, your spirit, in our own hearts, as we worship You, as we are convicted about our own sin, Father, help us to turn from it, to follow You as You called Matthew. Follow me. Teach us, Lord, to follow You as we are. Thank You for the mercy that You have shown us in Christ. May that be emblazoned on our eyes and the frontals of our eyes as we walk in faith. Thank you for honoring your name by loving the Father as you loved us through the sacrifice on the cross that we too might have newness of life in you and be able to do the same. Loving God as we love one another. And they will know that we are your disciples when we love one another. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.